Welcome to the Aesthetic City podcast. In this show, we aim to discover how to go forward and create a more livable, beautiful and healthy built environment. I'm Ruben Hansen, your host and founder of The Aesthetic City. Today's guest is a classical architect from the United States. He has over 18 years of experience in architecture, of which he worked six years independently. Apart from that, he is instructor of sacred architecture at the Catholic Distance University. He has given many lectures at various colleges, has many publications to his name and has built up extensive knowledge about ecclesiastical and other sacred architecture over the years. I wanted to have him on the show for a long time now, and here we finally are. So please welcome Eric Bootsma. Welcome, Eric. It's great to have you here. It's good to be here. Great, first of all, maybe to start a little bit about your background, because you are of Dutch descent, and so as a Dutchman, I have to ask about that. Could you tell a bit about your Dutch heritage? Yeah, yeah. my dad was born there in, in Friesland. If you can't tell, since you're Dutch, you probably can tell from the last mm-hmm. name. Yes. But uh, yeah, he was born there during the war, and then shortly after the war, moved to the United States. But always had a deep attachment to our Dutch heritage, always had... Lots of uh, Dutch decorations and windmills and whatnot about uh, the house and throughout the family. And uh, yeah, ik spreek een beetje Nederlands ook. Yeah. Maar ik ben een beetje te veel uit Yeah. So I'm a bit out of practice, yeah. so I don't really speak a lot. But a few Dutch people get together for the World Cup, and usually that starts to flow a little bit more. And then I tried to speak a little uh, Fries, but it's another one entirely. But uh, we didn't grow up speaking Dutch. We spoke English, but had a bit of an accent here and there. But Yeah. Yeah, that's a big, big part. And then the rest of my family, American, Irish, mostly English, Scottish, that sort of thing. So Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's fun. Do you know where most Dutch families are or where you got some concentrations of people with Dutch heritage in the States? Yeah, there's a couple spots. The big one really is kind of, it's really, it's Western Michigan. And then I've actually spoken to a potential client out there in Western Michigan who is also Frisian. Yeah. And so, yeah, the towns of Holland and Zeeland and, and I think there's a Friesland as well. And there's a bunch of just places named for Holland out there. And so, yeah, yeah. My dad moved to New Jersey, where there's a bit of a population there, but not quite as much. It's kind of there. Michigan and Iowa are the big populations. And then the Fries, a lot of them moved to Canada because Canadians were the ones who liberated most of the northern parts of the Netherlands. So Yeah, 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 big, yeah, big part so of the... Where a lot of them sort of ended up after the war. Big part of our war history, indeed. Canadians were warmly welcomed. But yeah, so a bit about your further education. You did a Bachelor of Arts at the Thomas Aquinas College and a Master of Architecture at the University of Notre Dame. I assume that was a bit later? Yeah, well, I took a, a bit of time in between. It was kind of a long, sort of uh, torturous sort of path to get to my graduate school. But that's right. Uh, well, I went to Thomas Aquinas sort of beginning talking about and thinking about classical philosophy and thinking about classical studies just in general. I was interested in politics. I was interested in a number of different things and then sort of kicked off my freshman year in a study of Euclid. My professor there said, oh, you're pretty good at geometry. You should think about architecture. And that just kind of lit lit a spark yeah. there and got interested in what what they were doing at Notre Dame. Uh, they had just really kind of started when I was a freshman in college. It was in 1997. And they had just really kind of only begun the the program in classical architecture there yeah. the institute for classical architecture and art which i attended in 2002 they were also less than 10 years old at the time so it was a sort of new and exciting thing and really got interested in it graduated in 2001 
uh, took a year to study art history, which I'm really, really uh, thankful for. Yeah. Uh, studying Baroque <clears throat> and, and Renaissance architecture, and then and then eventually got to Notre Dame at uh, 2005, and then took a three-year program there. So. Being able to go there, go to Europe, uh, go to Rome, like I said, uh, uh, Netherlands was a place I actually got to visit too. So it was one of those places I'd, I really love to go. But spending six months in Europe studying architecture is absolutely invaluable. Yeah, uh, can't uh, can't uh, be more thankful for that. It's part of my education. So yeah. So you went to the ICAA first before you did your masters at Notre Dame. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, they had a summer program that uh, they had started up, and then they did kind of a two-month program, and then uh, I think they uh, suspended it for a while, but I think it's back up and running again. But uh, it was a great, uh, great program. New York is, as far as classical cities go, I think New York. It is some of it is still has been removed but uh in the early 20th century uh the gilded age really new york uh was really the sort of center of classical architecture all the greatest firms were there and active yeah. and working and building civic monuments and private monuments there and places like newport rhode island which i only only gotten to visit this last year it was wonderful uh and then washington dc uh, these are the places that they were trying to build in the early 20th century of really classical architecture. And so really di dove into the study uh, there in New York and really enjoyed it a lot. Yeah. So what sparked your interest in architecture? So it was your your tutor at Aquinas Bachelor Studies or was there also already? Well, yeah, it was kind of a, it was one of those things where I think it was a, a spark that sort of lit some kindling that was already there. My, my dad was a contractor. He grew up building things. And then my mom was a painter and she grew, painted oftentimes. She painted a lot of windmills. Yeah. <laughs> she painted a lot of Dutch scenes. Yeah. Uh, but that sort of combination of artistic and practical together was really one of those things that uh, seemed to make sense. You know, a couple of brothers who said, well, I wish I had done architecture, uh, didn't end up doing it, but, but I was the one who did. So, yeah, so I've always, always enjoyed it, uh, always been around artistic people. And so it, it just made a lot of sense. And it, I'd always been very interested in, in, in culture and in really kind of permanent things and being sort of a small C sort of classical conservative, uh, interested in the things that can continue and last for as long as possible. And politics is one of those things where I was involved with. It always seems very changeable and always very subject to the tides. But architecture is one of those things where you can actually start to affect a place and a culture, a city, a nation in a, in a long-term way that really is in some sense permanent. You know, none of these things are really, really permanent as we can see the 20th century really kind of proved, but it definitely gives it a lot more lasting effect and, and that's that's something that I, I really enjoy about it that something that someone builds now can be there for hundreds of years and, and affect and uh and people can enjoy it and venerate these places and buildings which we have uh, throughout the world yeah so yeah that makes me directly think of the current focus on sustainability which in my eyes is only focused on a certain type of sustainability that is energy efficiency and those types of things instead of building things that last for ages and that have a positive effect on people for ages. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, there's a, there's a certain sort of movement now in, in architecture, which I and others basically call greenwashing, where they take essentially modernist architecture, which is um, energy inefficient to begin with, but then also 
sustainably inefficient. They build out of steel and concrete and glass and the materials which are not natural, which are which are heavily intensive to to make environmentally, uh, and then also have to be built on an industrial scale. And so they take these and they they put a lot of green greenery upon them and you know trees planted on them, which eventually end up dying. Or, green walls would take three times as much water to water and they put these forward as being the sort of the the great environmental movement but in the reality the most environmental building is probably something what we could find like a hundred years ago just very simple brick and slate roofed building that was built a hundred years ago that uh, may have been built as a warehouse and may have been built as a school but now it's an apartment building or now it's an office building or 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 it was an office building and now it's an apartment building or vice versa it could have been an apartment building and now it is but uh making something which is uh adaptable and reusable and uh it can be uh preserved is is much more uh uh, much more environmentally friendly. Uh, and then we also sort of find that those the energy efficiency of these buildings, there was a study about 10 years ago of mm-hmm. the energy efficiency of New York buildings. Let me see if I can find a link to that somewhere. But it was, they, they listed the, the buildings which, which were the most energy efficient, how much energy went in and how to heat them and cool them and, and, and whatnot. And the buildings that they found that were the most energy efficient were the ones that were built in the 1920s. Wow. Uh, <laughs> sort of the least amount of uh, insulation, the least amount of uh, new technology, but then they compared those uh, to say like the Seagram building, you know, the modernist buildings from the 60s. Those ones were the worst because they're all glass, and they're all steel. So heat uh, just transfers incredibly quickly from one to the other. Solar gain is incredibly high, but a building which has a proper sort of proportion of wall to uh, window is a place that can be heated and cooled efficiently uh, throughout the year. And so uh, the traditional and classical way of designing a building, whether it's two stories or a skyscraper, is something that's more environmentally friendly than these buildings, which are essentially most of the buildings going up today are these glass towers, which are, uh, again, just kind of being greenwashed. They, they get these LEED certifications and LEED is in the United States. It's the slight leadership in environmental mm-hmm. and yeah. ecological design, I believe. I can't remember exactly, but because I don't subscribe to it because uh, LEED certified buildings end up being extremely energy efficient. But they get points for using, say, recycled bamboo. Uh, they get points for using certain things, uh, water efficiency, these sorts of things, uh, which don't really uh, water reclamation or recycling programs. And those things are all good, but they don't actually get you energy efficiency. I've seen reports of building owners, corporations, they bought a brand new building, they got it up and it was lead platinum. And then they said, well, our energy bills are twice as high. Was, well, we got lead platinum. We didn't get promise you energy efficiency, but that's <laughs> what they're being sold on. So yeah, it's kind of a, a scam really. Do, do you see full masonry brick walls and other types of construction we used to apply with very high mass walls making a comeback that have a lot of embodied energy that make the building radiate off energy after it has been heated up for a long time or do you see that mm-hmm. not being feasible anymore or could the same be done with let's say concrete which is still a very important building material but yeah mm-hmm. well i think it it's tough to say it's making a comeback, but we're seeing people who are actually starting to do it when 
at least here in the United States, it wasn't basically wasn't done at all for the last 40 years, 50 years. Basically, in the United States, I mean, we have a, a long sort of tradition of just building out of uh, con- just wood and stud walls, especially residential uh, buildings. Yeah. And so they're very, it's kind of, it's a long tradition, goes back to their housing frontier of the East Coast from the uh, 18th, uh, 17th and 16th century. They, they are doing... Uh, very sort of simple, whatever they can get their hands on, but building out of brick became really kind of the, the high standard, but wasn't always possible. But then, uh, but in the last 50, 60 years or so, they would basically just build either wood or they would put on veneer uh, brick. So it's a single single brick wide and an air gap in between, and then a stud wall in between on the inside. And so it's all insulated so that it, it it's sort of nice and sort of snug as far as heat. But, but what happens is that wall, there's a gap in between and that ends up being uh, water can get in there and all sorts of stuff. It's sort of cheap insofar as like it doesn't really protect you against uh, here in the here in the United States, especially in the south. We get tornadoes, we get hurricanes, that sort yeah. of thing. So veneer walls, you see them collapse all the time. And so but I, I think you've seen in recent years, there's a fellow out in Oklahoma uh, does thousand year house, yeah. uh, chase, I can't almost blank his last name right now, but they do the thousand year house or the building, uh, yeah, building culture, building, building culture. Yes. Yes. And they're building uh solid masonry, three, three bricks, thick, uh, walls. And they're finding a couple of things that they're building them quick enough. And they're training people to build them quick enough that, uh, number one, they're, they're getting the cost way down. And then they're getting, they're getting, uh, energy efficiency because again, the, the thickness of the wall keeps the heat and the cool in, uh, for most of the day and in, in the evening as well. And yeah, I mean, I, when I was a kid we lived in a stone house, house out in Oregon. And it, it was, again, the summertime, it, it stayed relatively cool inside because it had a, a foot and a half thick wall yeah. of granite and <laughs> nothing really uh, made it, uh, heated it up inside. It was a castle, basically. It can tend to be a little cold in the wintertime, but then again, you can, well, getting it warmed up is actually a little, uh, pretty easy efficiency wise. Uh, but, but yeah, so we're seeing a bit more uh, of that going on. Uh, people are starting to understand that, uh, that, uh, that embodied energy in a building is just as important overall to it. Yeah. And there are people, you mentioned concrete, concrete can be used general. I think but there are, there, there are ancient buildings that were built out of concrete. The, the Pantheon in Rome was built out of concrete and it's still there. It's sustainable. Uh, the difference is, is that we, uh, they did not build with, uh, steel reinforcing, and that's one of the things that I think yeah. is, uh, at least technology-wise, that we're going to have to start uh, to move away from is uh, reinforced steel to build things because it is not sustainable in any way. It was always sort of sold as the concrete is surrounding this this steel reinforcing, which provides like tension members to it. It doesn't really actually protect it from water or infiltration. And so what ends up happening is the rebar inside the concrete yeah. ends up rusting and breaking apart. And so you can find buildings from uh, early on, from almost a century ago, which were built out of con- uh, reinforced concrete. They're all falling apart now. But uh, if you built out of unreinforced concrete, it can last for centuries because it's essentially just a, it's a, a reconstituted stone, essentially. Um, yeah. It's energy intensive. A lot of people don't. Uh, like that but if you build out of uh, 
unreinforced, which means you have to build, uh, you just have to build in different ways. So you can't, uh, you can't build in sort of a modernist uh, style where you're building everything with very flat lintels and no curves and no arches, uh, nothing like that. You have to be able to build in compression. And so building in compression means you need to be able to build uh, using uh, essentially classical methods of architecture yeah. embrace building out of pure compression. So uh, anything from a Roman bridge to uh, Notre Dame in, in Paris, they're built using compression and every, there isn't a, a, there isn't a tension member in any of those. Um, and so using the force, it's just really quickly. I mean, I just basically say, if you can build without tension, uh, you're going to build something that lasts a lot longer. And then all of the materials sort of fall into place from that. Yeah. If you just build with compression. Does, does wood? Yeah, wood is one of those materials that has a bit of, a bit of both and it can kind of span that. But it, it, tends to, it tends to hold up a lot better over time under tension than others do. Yeah. I mean, you'll find buildings that are uh, hundreds of years old. But even, even still, I mean, they'll build trusses out of wood and mm-hmm. mostly you're trying to get compression. They do have some tension in there too, but yeah. that's getting kind of in the engineering weeds there. But yeah. Yeah, but it's, I think it's fascinating to hear how deeply... Also, style is connected to building materials. That they really that construction technologies actually empower certain architectural styles or enable these styles to be possible. Yeah, and and so if we right. go to a society where we can't produce as much steel, we'll probably fall back to different kinds of architecture as well right right yeah you definitely have to go to things where you're able to say for instance like having massive spans of floor space things like that you have to be able to use you have to be able to use wood if you didn't have a lot of steel you'd have to use uh, masonry walls that were thick enough to hold up a roof and you'd have to use uh, floors which were made out of wood wood like i said it, it does have some tension to it any sort of floor that you build it's flat yeah it's going to have that in there but it can it generally over time it, it holds up a lot better so yeah yeah for sure it, it it changes the way you would do things and glass is one of those things which is very energy intensive and it's very uh energy intensive to make and to maintain a building uh using it and then I always like to say, like, a lot of this modernist stuff that gets built, it looks very uh, slick. It looks very nice when it's brand new. But once you start to get uh, a bit of age on it, uh, it it tends to look pretty bad. We have a, a Stephen Hall building here in Richmond, uh, Virginia, where I live. And it's got, it's got, uh, it's been there for two or three years. And it's got stains all over it. It's got any number. Yeah. Of, it just looks terrible already. Uh, so it's not it's not it's not slick and it's not new anymore. So yeah, yeah, that's not a problem, and that also and, ties uh, in. And, yeah. But if you have an older, yeah, and so if you have an older building in a in a in a, in a classical style, a traditional style, uh, the sort of the more age that it gets on it, the the better it ends up looking. And it sort of looks more sort of has a bit of a patina, it has a bit of age, it has a bit of character to it. And the water source spatters up and makes it sort of darker on one side you get a bit of you get a, a bit of look to it that uh, uh the, that the modern building has to be basically cleaned and maintained and 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 and, and washed over and over like a car uh, and it's kind of funny here in the united states like auto dealers have basically started building these buildings which are painted like cars and wow. they have to they have to wash them all the time like is it like a car that's incredible and yeah also, uh, so many 
things to focus on. Also, the whole question relating to plastics in paints, which is another bit of a different subject, but something I heard was shocking that most of the microplastics in the oceans actually come from broken down paint from buildings made with plastic-based paints and uv light breaks it down and the rain washes it down but yeah so but that's maybe for another <laughs> for another topic so yeah yeah that's another one that i'm to look into because your alternatives are lead and that one's not very good either so yeah yeah so i mean that that kind of just to, to put a to put a button on that one you know, which just says rather than spending all our time just painting things why don't we build out of natural materials that don't need to be painted we build out of brick you build out of stone you build out of uh, natural woods like cedar and uh, slate for roofing and things like that you don't need to paint anything yeah yeah or and then yeah. any paint that you could use could be interior wise and then you don't have to worry about that washing away yeah. so yeah. maybe a little bit about your other projects because you are mostly specialized in ecclesiastical architecture uh, is that right and how did that happen what attracted you to this niche well yeah that is a, a big part of what we do here i do mostly church architecture uh, we're kind of very new as a firm i've been around doing this in classical architecture i've been involved with classical architecture for about 20 years but then working on my own for about the last eight years and then just slowly picking up bigger and bigger projects right now our biggest project which we're about to release some drawings for uh, is a monastery for about uh, 20 nuns carmelite nuns uh, in pennsylvania uh, it's about uh, 70,000 square foot uh, monastic complex. I'm partnering with uh, Joel Pidel, uh, who a lot of people may know from uh, Twitter and Facebook. He's a great, great architect, a fellow a colleague from Notre Dame. He did the schematic design for that. And so we're doing that project right now. We're getting some things out and working on that. I've been actually working with some Anglicans, some traditional Anglicans here in Virginia, we're designing a small a village basically for their parish. They have a 1700 house that they were able to get. Someone donated it to them as a parish. This, this house uh, is called a Glebe house. And in England and in colonial mm -hmm. United States, the Church of England had uh, a thing called a glebe, and it was a, a piece of property which was given to uh, the basically the rector of a parish, so that he yeah. could have income. And so from from that, they there's a prop, piece of property in, in in Gloucester County, Virginia, which was donated in in the 1600s to the rector of these two parishes, and then. Uh, in when the United States, when they disestablished the Church of England and they took all of their properties and they sold it off. So it was sold and then it changed hands a number of times and then eventually ended up with somebody who was a traditional Anglican and they got it and they gave it back. And so now there's an Anglican priest and his family and they're living in this house again. It's the only, they think it's the only historic glebe house in the state where the priest is actually living in it. So it's original, you know, use from 300 years ago is now back to what it was and, but it's got a beautiful piece of property and we're going to be building a traditional uh virginia style uh church and uh housing and a new school cool. and a number of things so yeah. it's a long-term sort of master plan for that which is it's really cool because we're we're not only just building uh, a church uh, but we're building a whole community around it and that's really kind of uh something which I, i'm very excited about because it's because uh, I like to, I like to say, like a church, you could just build it just about anywhere. But but being able to do something more with the church is is really really key. Yeah, 
uh, because you're also working on another village plan, actually, at the St. Alban village in Detroit. And uh, that also looks like a very fascinating project because it's also, I think, linked to the regeneration of parts of Detroit. Right. That one's an exciting project. We're, we'd worked on that one, and it was a group of parishioners at a, at a parish uh, called St. Joseph's in 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 Detroit, the traditional, uh, traditional Catholic, uh, community. They have a, basically a commuter community. They have a church, which was a remainder from an old neighborhood, which has all been reduced to almost nothing, but they built up, uh, through the Latin mass community. They have a group of people who all come in from all around to, to attend mass there and have a very strong, uh, parish, but uh, that's a problem for them is that they have to basically drive from all the way up to an hour away to, to come to church, but they really wanted to be in community, not only just as far as being in mass, but uh, uh, year round uh, to be in community 24-7 to be able to do that. And so they identified a piece of property nearby uh, to to build a neighborhood and they wanted to build a neighborhood so that it could be centered on their spiritual life, uh, but also be a community and be sort of a light to the rest of the, uh, the, the, the rest of the, uh, the city as well. And so looking at a piece of property of about eight blocks that were essentially empty and, and trying to build something where they have it centered around a, a, a square basically a place where the people could gather it could be a community yeah. uh we were going to be building a, no, a new sort of smaller chapel where they could kind of meet at any time but it's all sort of within sort of walking distance of the other church and then it would be a place where people and it would be a mix of uh of incomes too so we'd have larger houses for big families and we'd have uh small apartments for for singles or retirees or or widows or widowers and then people could be able to live in community with each other easily so one of the big problems with uh, suburban expansion nowadays is that basically they get and they'll build 100 acres of uh, luxury houses housing and or they'll build 100 acres of low income housing and uh so what you end up doing is you sort of ghettoize people based on their uh, their income level yeah. but um you know and that that provides a sort of a community but uh the church really is the thing that provides the best sort of community because it it, it spans everything so it's 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 all races it's all uh, ethnicities it's all it's all levels of income they're all there united by their creed that they they share in common and so they wanted to be able to have that so having that sort of uh, mix of incomes was very important to them and that's a very sort of traditional way of building a city you'll find it everywhere that a neighborhood that has large houses in it they'll also have apartment buildings in it sort of next door to each other they uh, people want to be able to live in community with each other uh, yeah and making something that we had that we could have almost everything we needed also within walkability uh having a small grocery store or a coffee shop and that sort of thing to be able to to be able to get to that also sort of uh, uh, in inclines you to, to to want to put everything together as close as you can and then uh and, and be able to to provide for people uh, yeah. to to live in community that way I, I find it interesting that a lot of the buzzwords in urbanism over the last few years like the 15-minute city walkability uh yeah, and also, of course, the whole sustainability mantra. The results are often kind of similar to very traditional ways of building. They all kind of link back to the way we, we used to build. So it's maybe just new buzzwords right. for things we have been doing for, for millennia. But also the whole community building is, I think, also something that they try to do. But, I mean, 
it's been done for centuries and we just seem to have lost it and need to reinvent it but you're in a world where that is still very much in, in church circles it's very much still a living thing <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of these things that are doing traditional design, traditional architecture, it is really kind of, we're just looking back at the things which worked in the past and saying, why did we abandon these things? And when we look at the way we've been building cities in the last, uh, you know, almost 100 years now, really about the last 80 since World War II, why is it that we changed from the traditional way to this new way? Uh, we decided to build cities around cars. And what is the result? I mean, the result has been that we've been atomized from each other. We've been uh, removed from uh, living in community with each other and helping each other. And people are extremely lonely. They're extremely uh, 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 disconnected from everyone. Yeah. But they're also, uh, but if we look back at the traditional ways of living that, you know, maybe, yeah, it wasn't perfect. Nothing's really perfect, but there was a certain sort of sense that a, a community that we had a, a sense of belonging to a place was much more there. I was, I'm lucky that I grew up in a small town that was still very traditional design. Uh, had, we were what we like to call Main Street America. So it was a little Main Street downtown mm -hmm. where we had parades every big holiday and everyone came downtown to, to see the parade. And our civic sense was very strong. Uh, just, we were in a small town, but uh, these are the, the things that we look at and we should say, it's nothing new, really. We're just looking back and see, finding out the things that work. Um, as somebody who's, I say I'm conservative, I embrace the things that are new that and changes that work, uh, but I reject the things that don't. And so I think we need to be able to say, can we look at new things and, and look at them with a, with a, uh, uh, an eye towards uh, an honest eye and say, did this work? Did this provide the things that we, we were promised or not? Where we promised, we were promised by suburbia that we would all be free. We would all have easy commutes into town. We'd all live in this wonderful idyllic community. And then uh, we would be great citizens because of it. But what's ended up happening is we've, uh, we've built places which are ugly that nobody wants to preserve. Traffic is still horrible. If if not worse, and we're essentially we're, we're killing uh, we're killing our our countryside, we're destroying uh, the beauty of the countryside, and we're destroying uh, our lives too because people are dying in their cars and being hit by cars, etc. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So we look back at the old ways of looking at things and say, can we build an old city that's a little more compact and it's not designed around a car and it's uh, it's maybe maybe it's connected by a railroad instead? We can get these things. It's not. It's not saying uh, progress is bad because th they're always sort of like these facetious yeah. sort of complaints. Oh, you just want to build build in a way that people would just be wearing hoop skirts and, <laughs> and driving around in, 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 in a horse and carriage instead. It's like, no, yeah. no, no, it's fine. People can have cars or electric scooters or electric bikes yeah. or um, modern sanitation uh, or is an amazing invention. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Floor heating. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So we can have all of the things. We can have all the best things. Why can't we have all the best things? And some of the best things happen to be the old things. And so that's yeah. kind of our our understanding for things. So and the old ways of doing things, if they're good, why get rid of them? So, yeah. So yeah. So you you actually cover the whole breadth of the architectural and urban design and planning world with your work. And do you see architecture and urban design as being intrinsically intertwined? 
Absolutely, yeah. My good friend Steve Muzon likes to talk about the way that he's an urbanist. He's a new urbanist. He's been involved with it for a long time. I'm not sure he's one of the founders, Mm -hmm. uh, signers of new urbanism, but as far as I remember, the last 20 years or so, he's been involved in a really, really sharp guy and really good. But he, he talks about what he calls a walk score. Not the walk score. I mean, we have a, we have the walk score is this thing that says if you have uh, within 15 minute walking distance, you have shopping, you have a grocery store, a pharmacy, a restaurant, things like that. It increases your walk score, yeah. places to shop and, and go do things. But uh, but he has the walk interest score. It says that that walk score gets higher the more interesting the buildings around you and the surroundings you have around you are. Uh, and so... Uh, you can, you could find a place where you had all of those things within walking distance, but if everything you surrounded with was, uh, either just sort of wide open paths with no shade on them or, or really, really ugly buildings or, um, places which were sort of windswept and, and, and the architecture around them was really boring and ugly, nobody would want to walk that way. I just drive, just get in the car, drive past it. Don't, don't even, don't even uh, try and walk there. But if you go to a, say like a place like Rome or Amsterdam, you're just going to walk everywhere. You will walk as far as you can. Uh, I certainly remember the first time I got to Rome, I walked from one side of the city to the other. I had a great time. Yeah. It didn't matter to me that it took me an hour to do it because I was enjoying what I was doing. And so it makes, it makes everything, um, uh, less about a chore, but more of a, a, a way to enjoy your life. And so uh, isn't that great when you can be able to say, well, my commute or my drive or my, my walk to go to get to somewhere is enjoyable rather than a drudgery. And that's really kind of what living in suburbia, everybody complains about traffic. Well, they complain about traffic because it's you're sitting in your car doing nothing, seeing nothing, Everything around you is hideous. Uh, it's horrible, right? But if, yeah. if it took me just as long to walk through a beautiful neighborhood, and like today is a beautiful fall day here in the south, and leaves are all turning beautiful colors. If I'm walking for 15 minutes in this, uh, I love it. It's great. Fantastic. So my walk interest is there. But then the architecture around us, too, affects that. So new urbanists, a lot of them don't. Uh, really subscribe to the idea that architecture has any has any uh, any part to do with it. As long as you have everything you need within walking distance, and it works fine. But uh, yeah, it affects you walks your your walk interest. If you have beautiful buildings around you, and we can build beautiful buildings. But the I think the other thing is too is I think it affects how uh, people who would be resistant to it uh, it, it can affect that in, in in a positive way. So. I always like to say every building that you love was one time new. Every building that you love was was at one time new. And so somebody had to put it up. And so there was a period of time where we had, when you built a new building, people were excited about it because it was progress. It was something new. It was, it was, it was great. But I like to say is that in the 20th century, when you started building new buildings, uh, what you replaced, uh, uh, if you tore the building down and you replace it with something new, uh, the new thing would invariably be worse than what was there before. And so we have now sort of this ingrained sort of skepticism about a new building going up being any good. Usually, and, and frankly, most people are right about that because most new buildings that go up are terrible. 
even the new urbanist ones. I see them coming up all the time. They're uh, boxes or very plain, uh, if not just outright offensive. A lot of, there's a, there's a term that they use for spreadsheet architecture. It's just basically take a spreadsheet and start messing with the the columns and whatnot. There it is. There's your architecture. And it's just, it just doesn't really make a, make for anything that uh, is beautiful in any way. It, yeah. uh, it usually is a building that has uh, an architecture which is completely unrelated to the place that you live in. And I think most people, when they live, decide to move, say, to a traditional, uh, like a, an older town, they, they like the architecture and the place to have a character of its own. Like we have our character here in Richmond and there's character in old places like Boston and New York and certainly Charleston, Savannah, uh, Amsterdam. But if you're building you're building a building there and it looks like it's completely out of place. Uh, people, people get up. Uh, they, they, they get up. They don't, they don't like that. It doesn't fit. So they, they resist it. But if you can build a building, which is beautiful, that, that fits in, uh, everyone's going to, going to love it. And I'm just thinking, uh, just was just thinking about, uh, an example of, a uh, there in, in the Netherlands, mm-hmm. uh, there's a place called, uh, Brandevoort. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that was built probably about 15 years ago. Yeah. It was uh, initially they had to plan to build this, and it's very interesting. They had uh, they had actually, and I have never seen an article about this, but I know this to be true from my professors at Notre Dame that they had asked Rem Koolhaas to come up with a design for the town, and uh, they had some sort of master plan that they put in front of them, the citizens there, and they they're like, nah. They were sort of, yeah, I guess maybe. And then uh, a studio at the Rome program mm-hmm. for Notre Dame uh, students came up with uh, a traditional town plan. Uh, and they used traditional vernacular Dutch architecture. They used uh, everything that sort of fit and they, they studied it. And they, they presented it there to the citizens there in Brandevoort. And then uh, they loved it. Uh, and then they ended up hiring Rob Creer to build the master plan yep. for it. And so now they have a traditional uh, town plan. It might not be perfect, but it's something much more in character for what they expected to live in. And, and it's very, and that is, that's something to me, it says, okay, this is a development that happened that, that initially was sort of resisted, but now they fully embraced it. They fully, they love it. And, and so when you, when you find that you're building things and then people all of a sudden uh, are, are excited about it because it's a, it's an addition to their city rather than a, a, a detriment to it. That's where architecture really matters to urbanism. You see over and over and over again, people are saying, well, we need to build, we need to build, we need to build. But if you're going to be resisted tooth and nail all the time because you're insisting upon building a modernist glass tower in the middle of a traditional neighborhood, you're going to get resistance. But if you could build what we like to call the missing middle, where we're building four or five story apartments that fit in and that that mix in with things, uh, you're going to get a lot less resistance. I mean, certainly there's, like I said, a long sort of history of resistance for things. So there's a lot of people, especially on the right in the United States, who are very resistant, any idea of intensifying. Yeah. But uh, but on, on the flip side of that, I'm really glad that there are people like Strong Towns and Chuck Marone, who comes from a, at least a fiscally conservative way of saying, listen, we can't continue to build like this. We're going to run out of money. And I think uh, for people on the right, that they need to understand that. And people of conservative bent, too, should understand that uh, if we 
build uh, urban environments, that's a place that also preserves uh, the, the, it preserves the countryside. It preserves the rural life. It preserves, and it's also something where we can have a suburban, suburban uh, life, uh, but doesn't have to be a sprawl life uh, that can be a perfectly acceptable uh, place to live. It's not an assault on uh, freedom in any way to, to live in a city, because I think it's a completely natural thing to, to live in community with each other. And yeah. then, and again, I think there are, uh, this getting into politics, but I think there's a lot of people who are more sort of libertarian now leaning than a conservative in a sort of sense of communitarian understanding of, of being conservative. But, but then again, I mean, I don't yeah. live in sprawl. I live in a city, but it, but it's a suburb within the city. And, and like, I, I can live, I'm a five minute bike ride to grocery store and five minute bike ride to my school and church and, and all of the things that I need to get to. Uh, but it's perfectly pleasant. It's covered with trees and, and it's a wonderful place to live. Yeah. I guess if, because is it true that suburbs in the United States are also problematic because they are, uh, they're not interconnected well. You have like these feeder roads and you could be at, at a property at the edge of the one suburb and your neighbor could be in the next development and they would live uh, connected to another feeder road. So if you would want to walk there, you would have to walk for hours to go to the highway and all the way, so like down the collector road and all the way to the other property to reach this house because they're all separated. Is that true? Do you think there could be ways forward to uh, American suburbs by just connecting them better, but also perhaps create little cores? Has it been tried? Yeah, yeah. No, I think that is definitely a big one of the biggest problems is that we have these that Chuck Marone is called Strodes, uh, sort of connecting all of the, you know, it's this big collector road, which has all of the, the strip malls and, and, uh, auto oriented businesses along them. And then we have these pods of, of, of housing. Yeah. Every, every developer has just basically one way to get in and out of the development and that's it. And they don't really connect to each other. So they don't end up being a sort of, uh, interconnected neighborhood and interconnected city because you end up being these sort of, uh, what was it? Uh, the burb claves, you know, yeah. these little enclaves of, of suburbs and they, they don't connect to each other. And, but there are places, there's a city in Texas, actually, that I think just instituted a new sort of planning method that basically said anything that new has to connect, it has to connect, all the roads have to connect to each other. And so what it ends up doing is it ends up sort of um, uh, integrating and, and sort of distributing any of the sort of like just local traffic yeah. to each other. So that, like you said, if you want to try and walk to your neighbor, you can't do it. Now you can, you can. So maybe that cuts down a car trip, which you normally would have had to take. It doesn't mean that you have to have massive traffic running through every single. Yeah. And so it's one of those things that the, the suburbs sort of, a, a, it, it's both the cause and the, the assumption of it, right. That it, it assumes that everyone's going to drive, so it causes. So they say, let's 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 cut down all the traffic on all of these streets, and we'll just put it in one place. It's what it ends up doing is causing more traffic than if you had just integrated it all, and then you could just you could walk over or take a bike over to your neighbor's house instead of or a local grocery store, and it was integrated into the neighborhood, so it causes more traffic. So like when you when you say you propose to put like a neighborhood coffee shop in the middle yeah. of a neighborhood, they say, well, you're going to generate all sorts of tra car traffic well that sort of assumes that everyone's going to drive but if you put if you distribute them without within the city 
you don't really find that uh, it generates that much traffic. Here in Richmond, we're really lucky because within the city, we still have a lot of old traditional neighborhoods that have, uh, uh, we have uh, restaurants, uh, coffee shops, uh, you know, bars they're 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 integrated in the neighborhood and so every every couple of blocks there'll be a little little spot where you can go sit and it kind of becomes your neighborhood spot and they don't generate a lot of car traffic because usually the people who go there are people who live in the neighborhood and they just walk a couple of blocks to go there and so what it does is it cuts down sort of uh, a lot of your neighbor a lot of your traffic both in and out and so when you sort of integrate the commercial and the residential together, you you start to eliminate all of those things. It's 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 very funny because it's like it's the place where uh, it's the most when when you when you have them sort of integrated and, and mixed in together, the traffic's the lowest. The places which have them all sort of segregated out in our our, our suburban sprawl here, you get out there, it's a nightmare to drive yeah. around because everyone drives to absolutely everything and then if you go to you go to the gas station over here and and then or if you go say to okay i need to go to the grocery store and then i have to go to the the craft store well they're they're next to each other but i'm just going to drive because i can't really even why would i even bother walking from the one to the next because it's an acre of parking lot all the way across there and going back to the, the walk interest score, why would you do that? Because there's nothing interesting in between other than a parking lot, uh, which is, again, probably way too big to begin with. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah. so, yeah, so we've created these, these huge areas, which are just, they're, they're economically unsustainable. Because if you go to strong towns, they'll tell you. And uh, Joe Minicozzi with Urban 3, he'll show you that all of these places, the amount of tax that they bring in compared to how much money goes out from the, the city is just, it's, it's way off. They're ugly and nobody wants to walk around them and it causes traffic, causes all the things we don't want to have. And yet we continue to build this way. So it's one of the most sort of frustrating uh, parts about being an architect today is that we have... Uh, we have this sort of overlay of zoning and, and building code that basically requires us to do all of these things. And then yeah. any sort of trying to change it uh, gets resisted tooth and nail by people who say, well, you're trying to, you're trying to limit my freedom. You're trying to limit what I'm doing and you're trying to, to upset my way of life. And I said, well, no, I'm not trying to, I'm trying to at least allow the option to have something different. Yeah. And and again, when I find the neighborhoods that are the most walkable, the most beautiful, they're the ones that are the most expensive because everyone wants to live there. <laughs> yeah. The cheapest place to live is the place out on the edge of sprawl that's ugly uh, and it's cheap, you know? And why is it cheap? Because nobody wants to live there. Nobody, it's not a desirable place to live. So it ends up being at the, the bottom. But how do you make it so that, again, there's always this sort of thing about equity of, of housing. And I get that. And I get, I understand that poor people need to live somewhere too. But uh, if we make all the places that are walkable uh, so rare that they're so expensive, then nobody can afford to live there. We, If we built more of it, more people could could afford yeah. to live there. We could, we could be doing a lot better. I can so. also imagine if we start building attractive places with more affordable apartments, but built in a in a nice style, like six plexes and everything, 
uh, they would get so popular, right? They would get expensive, <laughs> and they wouldn't be affordable anymore. Right. So that's also like just uh, a <coughs> yeah. Well, it's a it's a it's yeah. also but if if you allow people to have ownership stakes in in places like that where you're building something that is nice, yeah. and then you're building it at an affordable level, and it becomes and then and guess what? That's their way yeah, of to rising uh, up to increase their wealth, yeah. and that's how people generally did it. They rise up because they built something, and they built something, they get in, and then it, be, it becomes. You know, it comes up. And so we're hoping that a city is a place that grows and it continues to expand. And so the people who are, this is one of the, my things that I, I don't get into trouble about because nobody seems to respond to it. But I say there's no such thing as gentrification because the people who owned, you know, these buildings within a, say there was a poor neighborhood. I mean, if you bought in that neighborhood, guess what? You're now wealthy because you, or you've increased your wealth because you had a piece of property that wasn't worth very much. And now it's suddenly worth a lot more. Yeah. But the yeah. thing is, is uh, again, probably a lot of those are, they're owned by people who uh, rent them out. And the people who rent don't, uh, don't, don't partake in yeah. that. But uh, it would be, it, it is a good thing for people to own property. That is how to earn wealth. Yeah. I mean, that's how you do it. But how do you do it so that we can get people so that they can they can own property so that they can increase their wealth yeah. and then everybody sort of comes up at the same time. And now they own property in it's, a, in a losing a formula. problem that we've always had. But yeah, exactly. So you, you, you say, okay, well, we're going to give you uh, uh, what they call a townhouse. Uh, you, if you're familiar with an American townhouse developments it's usually these sort of stacked up uh they look like townhouses but they're usually a garage and then like a really skinny house with like three or four stories above and they're all sort of stacked in together and they're all just kind of plopped out in on the edge of town and you have to drive there there's no town to the townhouse at all but they're usually the place that's like cheap and they can they can knock it up really quick and then they could sell it off and then people buy these things but then like they they don't increase in value. They're not a place that's pleasant. It's not a place that's, that's any good. But if you put, say, you actually built a town there, you could actually get something where people would, uh, if they they bought it at a, at a low level, they, they could increase. Because in general, you know, real estate always goes up. So yeah, yeah. It's very hard for it to go down unless, you know, unless you live in Chernobyl. Or <laughs> so... Yeah, maybe another question. What are, what have been some of your biggest realizations during your time as an architect and urbanist? Your biggest like aha moments. I don't know. I mean that that was a that's a tough question. What I've sort of realized is that there are a lot of people who want to do really amazing things and a lot of desire to do them. There, on the flip side of that, there are a lot of people who, when you present to them something which is traditional in every possible way. Uh, they will tell you that you're you're trying to you're trying to upset the apple cart and you're trying to ruin their life. Uh, there 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 are no end of the people like that. But in general, I think we find that when you present something that's beautiful, that's uh, understandable and traditional, we find that more people like that and more people want that than uh, than the and then the uh, the traditional art. I mean, when I say traditional, the 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 establishment modernist architects would like us to believe. I. I find that to be the absolute case that most people want to have a beautiful traditional place. And so, yeah. And in church architecture, that happens even more. Most people want a traditional church. And that is, uh, and that, that this is sort of thing is that I don't, I don't think it's a, like a big, a big re revelation there. I think, I think most of the things that we think about 
uh, traditional architecture and urbanism are, are, are fairly they're fairly ingrained in what we are as people uh, as a species what we want but I don't know I think I'm I'm finding that it's growing and there are more and more people who are, are interested in doing it and more and more people who are interested who are able to do it and continue to do it. I mean, maybe that's one of the things I've realized is that always sort of the, they were always sort of told nobody can do this. Nobody knows how to do this, but we find that there's just tons of people who uh, are incredibly uh, talented uh, at either architecture or urbanism or or just craftsmanship finding people like i have people who can do traditional wood trusses there are people who do wood carving there are thatchers out there who do thatch roofing and thing you want to do in the old ways they're still out there they they may cost a lot right now but they're they're growing in so far as that they're all busy and i think they they uh there's going to be a, a bigger demand for them. I mean, Chase out there in Oklahoma, you know, I can't get him on the phone. He's so busy. So uh, I've been hoping to get him to come design uh, to build the church that we want to do in Virginia. But uh, maybe we'll talk when we get the funding for it. So the best thing is, is to realize that like, if you think that there's nobody out there uh, doing this, that you're wrong. I mean, there are people doing it. I mean, but this was the thing. It's like when I first got into this about 20 years ago, I was like, I remember finding people who are interested in new urbanism just like traditional urbanism like wow people do this wow people do classical architecture that's yeah. sort of now uh, not the case because there are just there are that many people doing it it is a, a growing thing i mean if you only subscribe to the architectural press or architectural record or or any of the british architecture journals you wouldn't believe that uh, uh traditional architecture exists but it's out there you know I don't think I've ever seen one of, for instance, there's a couple of really great architects in, in, in the Netherlands there who do really amazing traditional work. Uh, I think it's Scala Architect yeah. and, and Six Architects. And they do amazing work. And they're just the tip of the spear right there. And they're doing it. And they're just doing it and laboring without any press, without any real acknowledgement <laughs> yeah. from anything other than their clients who, who probably all love it. Yeah. They just love what they're, what's going on. So... It's a crazy thing. Yeah. yeah. So there's this disconnect between the world. Yeah. So I'm thankful that now that we have things like Twitter, like Facebook and places like that, where we can get it out and people are starting to find that people can do this stuff and they're, they're not sort of bound by the architectural press anymore that who basically uh, just didn't ex acknowledge that people were doing this. They didn't exist. Yeah. And, and they still do that. I mean, they, I, I have yet to see a traditional architect architecture show up in uh, architect magazine or architectural yeah. record or if they do it's just it's one every couple of years do you think uh, but there's there are more of these projects do you think there should be uh, there maybe should be just a, a new magazine a traditional magazine and would that make uh, would that be viable and also another question about twitter yeah what kind of things have you noticed to change there and what what kind of impact do you think it has made well i think a magazine i mean traditional building is out there and they've been doing a, a good job with it and then there are uh the ica has put up a, a number of publications but i think you know as far as that goes i mean magazines are kind of a an old media which is i think probably a dying yeah. form now because like new media really is a way to to get out there and connect to people but I, Twitter's like been one of the things that I've been on and put up my work and and 
put out debates with people on and it, I've been able to connect with a, lo- a number of people that way. And I think it's been very, very good. And certainly yourself being able to connect, to, talk to you through it. And I think it's, it's been wonderful because you, you find that we have an incredible amount of influence on people and people connect to it because they haven't, they don't have time to go and subscribe to a magazine and get, get read it cover to cover, but they can, they can find something that comes across there, comes over the transom. As I like to say, they can find something. Oh, I, I like architecture. I like traditional stuff. I didn't know. And now they're starting to see that people are out there doing it and advocating for it in every possible way. I'm always sort of amazed. Like I'll put out things and, yeah. and, uh, uh, I'll get 100 likes or something like that, and I'll look at like Architectural Record or Architects Journal, and they've got 10. There's just other architects looking at their stuff. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so what? I don't like to, I don't like to, to, to gauge things based on likes and things like that, but I find that when we put out really good work and I share really amazing stuff, people really respond to it. It's, it's really amazing to see. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, I also got introduced to this world via Twitter, because there was no other way kind of uh, that it could have reached me, like in the newspapers, in the in general websites, like, there's not really a medium where uh, this, this movement, you could say, is being discussed or is being shared. Uh, But on Twitter, I kind of stumbled upon it. And then you find some accounts, and then you get sucked into this bubble. Uh, But then you suddenly see how much is actually happening but before that it's kind of hidden and that was very surprising to me and that only after that point i started searching and i found also all these organizations like intbau and the icaa Uh, i guess here in in europe yeah icaa isn't really active and and intbau is is tiny it's only known amongst traditional architects which are not very well known so i think that's a a big problem but just imagine how little the general public knows about just the existence of this world uh, it's it's astounding most people i talk right, about they right. are not even slightly aware of this whole architectural paradigm so mm-hmm. i think if they would be aware that this is a thing there would be a major change and that's actually what has happened in scandinavia with the architectural uprising there a lot of people were so frustrated because they were building really gray and grim buildings uh, in a lot of places and it became so bad that it kind of ignited into this rebellion and it has been pretty successful so far over there but they really got a lot of media attention and now uh, they actually are achieving change but in a lot of places they're not that far and i must say here in the netherlands also they're utilizing traditional forms traditional buildings because the market is now mostly in control in a lot of these places and they know how well it sells but yeah of course here our urbanism is also a little bit different than in uh, the united states we have perhaps more rules and i think these of suburbs wouldn't really be possible here which is a good thing but still yeah our problem is i think more in the inner city areas where you have things going up often with public money that i think will not stand the test of time Right, right. Yeah, no, I think it's one of the things that is very heartening to see is when people are aware of it, they become very, uh, they say, well, why can't we do this? You telling me we've been able to do this, but yet we've just been doing this, this direct for the longest time. And 
it's it's kind of fr- frustrating to see. But yeah, no, I, th- I think I think you see that like Netherlands for sure is great planning, and we we certainly look at it for urban design here in the United States. I mean, there's lots of people who are always looking towards there and and Denmark and other good places who are doing it well, uh, who know how to build a place. Uh, like like I said, like some of the some of the architecture which is built, yeah, like public housing, that sort of stuff. It's all very very much controlled by public money and then the public money becomes controlled by the experts and the experts of course are the architects who run the universities and the universities are run by modernists and so and i think i've said this a number of times though it's like that i have people who are involved with politics and political science and say you'll you'll not know uh, you have no idea the the anger directed towards you for being out of the orthodoxy uh, you don't understand what it is. I mean, and they, they're not in the orthodoxy in, in political science or philosophy or anything like that. But when you are out of the orthodoxy in the art, art world and the architecture world, it is, it's vicious. Yeah. I mean, it, it really can be absolutely vicious. And I've seen it on Twitter and just horrible people saying horrible things about you who are, these are authors who are published in the press and they're, they're professors of architecture, but it's completely normal for them to treat people like garbage and to accuse you of being all sorts of horrible things, uh, being a Nazi, being this and that, yeah. because you advocate for things which are beautiful and which is insane because I know know tons of people who are in architecture and frankly most of the people i know who are very liberal who are in traditional architecture most of them are and and so uh it's insane it's it's horrible what they're doing but they control the means and they control all of these things but now i think we're starting to, to see a certain sort of uh, a populism sort of rising and you know, it's new and it takes some time. You know, it's like the architectural establishment, they controlled the universities. And when I say they controlled it, they uh, 100% of the universities that put out architects until the 1990s, they were all doctrinaire followers of Corbusier. Absolutely. In every possible way. Urbanism, we've started to turn the tide and that started to turn in, in the late 90s or something yep. to, to where now most uh, architecture schools and planning schools are starting to look towards what they're doing in the Netherlands and toward traditional stuff. They're doing more uh, uh, understanding of, of walkable places. And that's good. That's a fantastic thing. The, the aesthetics, though, they're still hundred percent behind uh, the modernist architecture and and that establishment. Yeah. And so in trying to look towards precedent, trying to look towards beauty, uh, and using those, they don't uh, they don't want that to happen. And it's really uh, a long sort of doctrinaire been uh, inured in this in this in in this doctrine for so long that they can't they simply they don't know anything else yeah. so and anyway I, go, go off on a yeah. Rant for a while. <laughs> yeah just got a an idea i always feel that when you look at cities but also at buildings like an urbanist and also like a social scientist a social geographer and if you look to not only buildings but also urban places i feel it's inevitable to start thinking differently about the architecture as well because you s- if you look at just patterns of where people move and why they move there and why they spend time in certain places and don't spend time in other places it just becomes obvious that there's something wrong with certain types of architecture and certain types of urban fabric it's just clear as day because you just see where people go and where they don't go and you see and then if you start doing qualitative 
research and you ask people about it and start performing interviews and polls, then that evidence is being reinforced. And then it becomes very, very clear that how we used to build pre-war was a more successful recipe for urban environments than after. Mm -hmm. But I think you could even take it one step further that it also applies to architecture. And I think because I was an urbanist and I also studied urban planning, I was always looking at buildings and urban environments in a different way than architects. And that made it easy for me to switch ideas about architecture. But then there's also a lot of other evidence which starts to accumulate about like high rise and things that I was in favor of, but now are starting to turn against because you see all the research about how people living in these high rise blocks with little contact with their neighbors have deteriorating social lives, etc., etc. So what do you think about this idea? And do you think that uh, a, a stronger and different look at urbanism could be the undoing of modernist architecture? in the long term well i think yeah absolutely it, i think i think it already sort of has in in many ways that they you can no longer sort of create the the very famous plan it's called villa yeah no, villa radius by uh, it's corbusier's plan for paris yeah. For, for Paris, you know, this plan of knocking down the city and building up yeah. these tower blocks. And no one would ever possibly think about doing that anymore. And I think the idea of these large-scale destruction of a neighborhood to do that, now that's already a dead idea, and it's not an idea that they can never possibly do. And, and that one was a very sort of a key sort of philosophical tenet of modernism, was that everything that came before was a bad idea, and then we have to destroy it. Now they have to sort of fit in within things. However, again, they they, they still like to take buildings and sort of subvert them or place sorts of shards like through them and, and make them sort of horrible. But I think, um, I think the urbanism also sort of focuses on the fact that, that uh, uh, urbanism uh, relies on people to make it work and it relies on the enjoyment that people have. And so, and I think a lot of modernist uh, uh, ideology is around this, this sort of, um, postmodern idea that the world is horrible we have to show it to them uh, that doesn't work in urbanism if you say the world is horrible and we're going to show it by urbanism nobody shows up to your you know, to where you're what you're building and then you've seen too these uh, most of the buildings that end up these brutalist buildings get torn down they get torn down not because they're necessarily ugly it's because they're horrible uh, urbanistically, they, they, you, you just simply can't get around them. You can't deal with them. They, they, they're a blight on a city. The, I think it's the Harkness, no, the Yale hmm? architecture building. It hasn't been knocked down. I don't think anybody's going to propose to knock it down because uh, it actually seems to fit urbanistically within the neighborhood that it has. It's in a discrete sort of building there. Uh, but these tower blocks in, in London or, or these things, they destroy a neighborhood or these massive malls that they basically built in these city centers in, in England, like they're te tearing them down because they're horrible. Uh, they, they don't function. They don't work. And they were promised to do this and the modernists all hate it because we're tearing this thing down. Oh, it had such good intentions. Well, it didn't work. I always like to say, oh, this is an architectural experiment. Well, experiments 
sometimes fail and we have to admit that they've failed and this is a ex failed experiment and we shouldn't build that way anymore and i think most people most architects even still would not do that so they they, they concentrate on building these sort of these buildings which sort of fit in or they end up building in dubai or abu dhabi where they've got more money than sense so yeah 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 and of course in those extreme you know, where they don't they don't care about urbanism in any way so <laughs> yeah it's, it's so. driving from compound to compound because it's yeah. Uh, yeah they're they're kind of bound to air conditioning yeah right right despite the fact that like traditional architecture there works very well in the middle east because it's just hot and dry and so if you can stay out of the sun you're actually not that bad yeah. uh, and there are there are examples like in dubai i mean there's an example their old town is actually quite pleasant yeah. from everything i've seen and they invented wind towers to cool their buildings in a natural way absolutely but uh, these traditional ways they're not something that they're at all interested in doing there but but i think yeah i think the the traditional town centers things like that that there's there's signs of it that people are trying to to do things and uh, i think the good sign is like most uh inner what was considered inner city was uh when i was a kid the inner city was a bad word uh, we don't use that term anymore. We say city center. Everyone wants to be in the city center. And now it's an expensive place to live. When I was a kid, the center of town was a place where <laughs> you got out of because it's where bums were and horrible yeah. and crime happened. And now it's a place where everyone wants to live. So that that's already sort of turned. So, and, you know, yeah. And then a, a lot of those are, are tend to be traditional places, but some of them not. But Yeah, yeah. Do you have any other further hopes or ideas for the future you would want to share? Well, I think my biggest thing is that we need to have more people who are interested in educating on architecture, more people who are interested in maybe even sort of breaking that, that monopoly that the architecture schools have on um, architecture, uh, that we can, we can find places where, where people are being educated properly in traditional architecture as they understand it. I'm encouraged because there's a couple of places. I mean, my well, alma mater at Notre Dame, they did, they've been doing a very good job for a long time. Uh, but their new colleges, Benedictine College is one of those. I give a shout out to because they've, they've been started uh, fairly recently yeah. and they're already putting out some very good work. And very good students are coming out of there. I had an intern from there uh, this past year or past two years, really. But then it would be an encouraging sign to see some more schools. Catholic University in in Washington D.C. is also doing. Yeah, it would be nice to have a school. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as a Catholic, I don't really care too much, but it would be nice for the rest of the world if there was a school that wasn't a Catholic school was doing traditional architecture. But I think the Prince's Institute did a very good job in England for a while on that but it would be nice to see if say if there was a, a, a university over in in europe or something yeah. that could do could do something similar yeah yeah i, I think europe is still but, far uh, way off but uh, you never know yeah no i think there's good signs going on there i think in the north maybe not in spain or italy or anything but but again they anyway yeah yeah many factors for that but i, I am encouraged by what they have in england and certainly king charles when he was prince charles he did amazing work in in advocating for traditional architecture and he couldn't be ignored and that was that can't be understated that it was a really uh, an incredible thing to see to have somebody advocating for traditional architecture and urbanism in such a position of of influence that it really changed the, the landscape uh, i think there for sure now they can't really be ignored as crackpots and cranks because they've got places like yeah. poundbury which works yeah 
it works. It's a beautiful place. It's not, again, it's not perfect, but it works very well. So yeah, yeah, it's encouraging to see. And uh, maybe another thing that ties into this, what kind of technologies are you hopeful about? Which things might make a comeback uh, in, in building technology? What, what kind of things or techniques would you look out for that would make it easier to build more beautiful buildings or in any other way help? Mm-hmm. Well, the, the biggest thing is going to be the supply of craftsmanship. Yeah, It's the supply of people who are able to do these things. Because right now, if you have somebody who can do very good brickwork, they're in high demand and they can demand a lot of money. But if we can start to teach more people how to do this, the idea of apprenticing people to do traditional masonry, to do traditional woodwork, to do traditional framing, thatching, things like that. I mean, it may seem like it's silly to do, but the more people who learn how to do these things, the better off we're going to be. Because that's always the most difficult thing to do. It's like the cost of things is a concern when you're building traditional. But getting clients to be able to say, yeah, we'll pay for that. You know, when you can convince them, then it's important aesthetically. And certainly when I'm dealing with churches and dealing with institutions, I say you you should pay more for this because it's going to last longer and that's going to save you money in the long term. And that's really one of the things that's going to save so much is that you've invested in, in building right to begin with and, and you don't have to worry about it later. And to do that, you need to have people who are trained in, in designing it and trained in building it. Yeah. Yeah. It's all about the people. So, perfect. I think it is a nice place to close the interview off. Thank you so much for the interview so far. And, uh, it's wonderful. Yeah. I think, uh, happy, happy to be on. It's always love to be able to talk about it. Certainly couldn't, I could just talk all day. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah I think we could have perhaps talked more about church architecture, but uh, maybe that's for, for an next interview. You never know. But I think it was fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. That would be great. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. That'd be great. Yeah, I'd love to come on again and we could talk a little more about that in specific. That'd be great. Yeah. But uh, thanks so, so much and have a, have a great rest of your day. I think it's getting dark already. It's November. We're quite far up yeah. north. Yes. All right. Thank you so much. All and, right. Uh, see you next time. See you next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Aesthetic City podcast. You can find more information on Eric's work on his website, bootsmadesign.com, or follow him on Twitter. I included the links in the description below. If you like this content and support the mission of the Aesthetic City, you can support us by becoming a patron. Visit the Patreon link in the description and discover the exclusive benefits you will receive when you become a patron, such as early releases, exclusive content and access to our community. If you are looking for links to our website, Twitter, YouTube and Facebook, you can find them in the description of this episode. Thank you for listening. Until next time.